Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Jonah Lehrer talking about mystery. In many ways in life, we like to feel like we have things under control. We have things figured out. We know who we are, who our kids are. We like to be winning. We like to be good at things. And we like our kids to excel and to have things figured out. But actually, maybe we need to get better at embracing mystery. There is some compelling research on the power of awe and admitting that we haven't got everything figured out yet. Jonah Lehrer is a writer, journalist, and the author of numerous best-selling books, including a book about love, how we decide, and Proust was a neuroscientist. He's written for The New Yorker, Nature, Wired, The New York Times Magazine, The Washington Post, and The Wall Street Journal. And his new book is called Mystery, A Seduction, A Strategy, A Solution. We're going to be talking with Jonah today about how parents of teenagers can get more comfortable with mystery and with the unknown and how we can experience more awe with our teenagers and in our families. We'll be looking at the neuroscience of slot machines, sports, music, storytelling, mindfulness, and the incredibly effective methods employed by one of the most successful school systems in the country. Really excited to talk about all of that and a whole lot more today. Jonah, thank you so much for coming on the show. You have a book, a book on mystery, which I just finished reading. And I'm super curious how you decided to write about this topic. <laughs> my inspiration is a slightly embarrassing confession. It began <laughs> uh, with my then three-year-old toddler son who was hooked on YouTube Kids. Uh, that It's a very, very addictive app. It's a great babysitter. And in particular, I noticed, uh, this is years ago, he was obsessed with a specific genre of YouTube kids video called the surprise egg. <laughs> yeah, so essentially it's, it's parents make these giant paper mache eggs, fill them with toys. And then the little kid punches a hole in the egg and takes out the toys one by one. Um, and, and this is a dominant trope on YouTube kids. So I noticed he'd watch these videos right. over and over again. And, and I was astonished because these videos would have like a billion views. You know, uh, the original Ryan's Toy Review, Ryan's Toy Review, for those who don't know, he's now this massive brand in Walmart and Target. He makes, you know, $30 million a year. So 6 billion views plus. Um, 
but but he 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 he, he kind of took off after he made the surprise egg video and then yeah. it's been copied a million times over and it got me thinking about what is it about the surprise egg trope that makes it so compelling for toddlers why is it such a compelling narrative device for little kids and and i started thinking about how you know on the one hand when it's a paper mache egg filled with toys we kind of make fun of it it seems so silly but surprise eggs are also just a narrative trick you know for a screenwriter you call it a mystery box um so you look at the script for Star Wars, you go from one mystery box to the next, you know, who is Luke Skywalker, who is, what is the Force, who are the Jedis, who is Obi-Wan Kenobi, the kind of the story lurches from one unknown right. to the next, surprise eggs, or, you know, you look at the original Steve Jobs iPhone introduction, there's this amazing moment where he outlines the value proposition for this new gadget, and you're so excited and then he pulls out just the very top of it from his jeans pocket. And, and you can almost see it. And then he pushes it back in and says, we're not going to ah. show we're not going to show it to you yet. And I realized like, that's the, that's the ultimate consumer surprise egg. It's just mm-hmm. in Steve Jobs' pocket instead of a paper mache egg. Yeah. You know, you look at Jaws. We don't see Jaws for the first 70 minutes plus of the movie. That's a surprise egg. Right. So there's something I started seeing that, it wasn't just about kids YouTube, but it was this general narrative trick of hiding the information we're most interested in. Um, and it's not just used by Ryan's tour review, it's used by George Lucas and Steve Jobs and Steven Spielberg and Agatha Christie and Conan Doyle and all the rest. So that, that, that was kind of the initial inspiration for the book, but it really did begin in my kitchen making pancakes, listening to my son, <laughs> the surprise egg video. There is just, uh, there's something strangely compelling about those videos, man. I don't know. No, I mean, it's it's more a story about we're drawn to the unknown. Um, And I think that's the big idea in the book, that we live in this age of personalized news feeds where they're always feeding us more of what we already believe, um, confirming our beliefs. But when you step back and you look at the art that lasts and what we're really most interested in, it's not mere confirmation. It's we're drawn to the unknown. We're fascinated by, by things we can't quite understand, things we can't predict. Yep. Um, and I think we often overlook that in the 21st century, but I think it's a general rule of, of sticky and addictive and compelling culture. And it actually conveys benefits. You uh, point out in here, you, you talk about some research in here, research showing that interest in the unknown strongly predicts academic performance, even after controlling for other psychological variables, such as the ability to focus in class. Yeah. So, wow. uh, I mean, this is, uh, this, is, this is where an interest in the unknown connects to curiosity. Um, yeah. So if you look at, there's a longstanding income education gap. So kids from lower income households tend to do worse in school. And what you find is that if you correct for curiosity, so if you're able to build up curiosity in these lower income kids, that you actually erase the income education gap. So now these kids from low income households are performing just as well as kids from higher income households. And that gets, I mean, one of the theories behind that is one of the main advantages of having more money is you can encourage curiosity right your kids interested in dinosaurs so you can buy a membership at the natural history museum they're interested in 
making movies so you buy them a GoPro on down the line. But if you can build up curiosity in other ways in the classroom, then you can, you know, help to mitigate some of the disadvantages of having less money. So curiosity does seem to be, I think, a really crucial and often overlooked component of education, right? It's learning how to learn. But so it's not just that some people are just inherently more curious than others, but that there's maybe ways to facilitate curiosity or encourage it. My guess is it's both. I mean, like most interesting human traits, there's, sure. there's individual variation. Um, but that said, it's a, it's a crucial advantage. And I think our schools and you know all of us should do a better job of incurring, encouraging curiosity in our kids. I think it's particularly important uh, in adolescence as well. I mean, one of my chapters, I, I devote an entire chapter to the Noble Academy. It's a charter school yeah. in Chicago. Um, which I was fascinated by because it's it's a non-selective charter school and they now outperform just about any other public school in the state of Illinois. And their method is all about encouraging curiosity. It's all about giving kids complex, ambiguous prompts. So instead of, you know, if you think about the way this typical classroom works, and this is especially yeah. to the teenagers, right? It's about, it's the opposite of giving them questions. It's the opposite of an you know, encouraging them with mystery. It's here a set of answers, memorize them for the test, and then you can forget them. Right. There is there is no element of curiosity. There's no element of mystery. We're not using any of these tried and tested narrative tricks. It's just here are answers, memorize them. Yeah. What the noble does is flip that on its head. It says, here are really difficult questions. Here's a really difficult text. Work mm-hmm. together with your friends. So it also leverages kind of, teenage interest in working with your peers, the social effects, work together to solve these difficult problems. Um, and and it's, it's a pedagogy that goes way back. It's typically associated with very fancy private schools. Um, but for them, it works incredibly well. So you have these 16-year-olds in inner city Chicago from all walks of life, uh, dissecting Hamlet and talking about kind of line by line interpretations, wrestling with these very difficult problems. And they find it far, far more engaging, far more interesting than just memorizing, you know, answers written up on a chalkboard. And this, you say this is um, related to something called the Harkness method? Yeah, so that's the that's the name of this particular pedagogy. So the Harkness method, and it was employed deployed first at Exeter, uh, you know, and and again, we've often seen this kind of education as it's reserved for fancy, expensive private schools where right. they can afford to have one teacher for 12 kids. But right. what it's so intriguing about the Noble Academy in Chicago is they're doing this in much bigger classrooms and not just with kids from wealthy households, not just with, you know, kind of kids of elite academic status, but, but kids at a non-selective public school in the center of Chicago, and it's working incredibly well. Now, the knock against this kind of pedagogy has always been, well, then the kids won't perform as well in standardized tests, right? Because we're not ah, teaching them. But when you look right. at Noble, if you look at the Noble Academy, the opposite is true. These kids outperform; they do the best by by a by a large margin on standardized tests. So even though you're not teaching to the test, 
they do incredibly well. And and it, when you ask the teachers, and this was the particular paradox, I, I I kept trying to wrap my head around, and the and the teachers kept saying, "Well, it's because we teach them how to deal with hard problems." So if you just teach a yeah. kid how to regurgitate information, they get to a problem they've never seen before on the SAT and they freeze. Right. They don't know how to do it. But if you teach them to enjoy hard problems, you teach them yeah. to enjoy taking intellectual risks, they get to this hard problem and, and they try to solve it. They feel like, confident that they know how to right. deal with it. So it's a the sense of self-efficacy as well. Yeah, and you by exposing them to lots of those kinds of difficult problems, um, then they're gaining the ability, putting in the reps of, you know, how, what happens when you get stuck and how do you then find different ways in and um, look at it in different ways. You talk about something called the self-explanation effect in this chapter also. What is that? So this again gets back to uh, the limitations of just giving kids answers. So, you know, again, this is the typical chalk and talk method where you write up the answers on a board and, and the kids are expected to plug and chug, expected to remember it and then regurgitate it. Um, the self-explanation pedagogy strategy for teaching is all about not giving kids the answers, giving them some tools to solve them, but then letting the kids work it out on their own. Uh, and turns out they learn much more. What's interesting is the kid's self-assessment of learning is less, right? If you just give a kid an answer, they think they understand the topic really well, but they often don't, often very superficial. But, right. but, but when you make them solve it on their own, they realize all that they don't know. So they're less confident, but they actually do much better. They actually yeah. perform much better on ensuing tests and they actually understand you know, the material at a much deeper level. So, you know, it's, it's this general trade-off of making, you know, making things easy, just giving kids the answers, yeah. get less engagement, less true understanding, um, but, but it's the way we do things. And, and hopefully, I think by leveraging mystery, we can invent a better classroom. Um, we can take advantage of the fact that teenagers are really interested in questions and complexities in in the unknown um and and they really wake up that's what wakes them up in the classroom when they can work on hard problems with their friends i definitely resonate with that i always felt like you're, you're like watching a, a professor kind of uh explain something on the board in class and you're like yeah that that totally makes sense i i'm with you <laughs> i understand that and then you get home and try to like work out a similar problem on your own you're like wait sorry how wait a minute what how did they get from here to here and uh, oh man i'm lost yeah and it's also the i mean the other i think the other lesson that i took away from the noble academy is that teenagers learn really well from other teenagers so by having them work together you really leverage that peer effect um I mean, this, this, my own experience of being a teenager is like, who wants to listen to a grown up, especially when they pretend to have all the answers. So instead you say, I don't know this, this is a mystery to me too. Mm. work with your friends and try to solve this together. And, and that's really what, what, what wakes them up and, you know, brings the classroom to life.
something I found really interesting in your book is a concept of near misses. And um, you talk about some research from Cambridge University showing uh, near misses activate the same reward circuitry as an actual win. Yeah. So I, I talk about this in the book in the context of slot machines. You know, yeah. here, here are these devices that take our money, right? right. Um, <laughs> there should be nothing fun about them. You're you're inserting coins into literally, a machine that you just literally give away dollars. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So why do people find this so compelling and, yeah. and compelling for long stretches of time? And I think yeah. this is this is where the particular programming of slot machines, it's really, you know, pretty evil genius. So the way these machines are designed now, and, and this this kind of helps explain why they really took off in the 1980s is even if they still make that analog rotary sound as if there are wheels inside, they're all right. computer chips at this point. And yeah. the computer chips are programmed to create near misses. So let's say you need three cherries all across to get the big jackpot. They'll give you two cherries and then stop on a reel right next to the third cherry. So that's a near miss. Yeah. And that takes advantage of this ancient learning software in the brain where, you know, let's say you're learning how to play basketball a near miss is actually encouraging, right? So the brain is designed right. to find some reward in near misses. So you yeah. keep trying, keep trying to acquire a skill so you don't give up just because- Oh, hey, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting closer. I'm, getting yeah. closer. I'm making progress. Right. So it's this important educational cue saying you're making progress, keep at it, good job. You haven't sunk that three-pointer yet, but you're getting closer, you're getting closer. Slot machines hijack that ancient learning machinery to keep us addicted to these games where we're losing money. Of course, there's no skill in a slot machine. You're not actually right. getting better. Your near right. misses won't turn into a make, but it's the illusion of progress. So it's, you know, it's it's an interesting way to try to, I mean, this is a general approach of my writing is to try to understand the brain by looking at how culture works on the brain and trying to ask why, why are we interested in slot machines? It seems crazy and irrational. What, what do slot machines teach us about the brain? But actually a lot. And it really got me thinking about um, just how we master any skill or how, and especially when you're kind of first starting out with something. And I think that's a lot of what teenagers are doing is, you know, trying something new and you're failing a lot as a teenager. You got, you're not really like um, an expert in anything, but yet there's such a willingness to like continue engaging and to keep trying um, and to keep kind of beating your head against the wall. And um no, and I do think, I mean, I do think teenagers love to acquire skills. I think part of the allure of video games, yeah. like slot yeah. machines, is they are really good at taking advantage of the near miss effect. Right. They are really good at using all these. They make it just a little too hard tricks. for you. To... Exactly. So you <laughs> keep going, you're getting closer, you're making progress, but you're not there yet. Right. Um, you know, it kind of finding that sweet spot between kind of difficulty and success. I think that, of course, the challenge and the anxiety of every parent is, you know, your 16 year old learning how to drive. Near misses can be very dangerous. That is true. <laughs> so on the other hand, teenagers are also, they're out in the real world in a very terrifying way um, where their near misses have real consequences for the first time.
So another interesting thing kind of in the same vein of uh, looking at how different aspects of culture af affect the brain um, is music. And you talk about some research about what kinds of musical passages um, are most exciting in the, in the brain. And uh, it appears to be music in which composers violate expectations in certain ways or by delaying the predicted outcome. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is something I think about a lot. Uh, in terms of my own adolescence, I think every teenager's experience where they play music and their parents say that's noise, right? It's like <laughs> a cliche rite of passage we all have to go through. Yep. Um, and and that's and I think what that ultimately reflects is is just parents don't, I mean, we're close-minded, but also our brains haven't internalized the musical patterns of teenagers, right? So they're, mm -hmm. they're absorbing new musical patterns, um, whether it's, you know, in my age, I'm dating myself here, it was the rise of hip hop. So I, yeah. you know, I love Chipmunk Soul of Kanye and my parents thought that was just, you know, total, total noise. What are you doing? There's not even a melody there. Play some more James Taylor. <laughs> um, right um, and but but that's that's because to them their brains couldn't assimilate these new musical patterns mm. um now once you've assimilated those musical patterns they cease to be interesting what you want is someone like kanye and i do kind of dissect some of his pieces in the book you want someone who comes along takes the pattern your brain now knows whether it's hip-hop or folk or whatever your genre is mm and violates it, makes it new, subverts it. Um, this is even true in classical music. So Leonard Meyer, the musicologist, has done some great note-by-note -note analyses of everyone from Bach to Mozart. And what he shows is what makes these composers great is that they find ways to subvert and undermine our musical expectations. So we think C majors come in and they give us C minor instead. Um, they, they kind of draw us in but then at the same time, they keep challenging us. They make the music a mystery. Um, the larger lesson being, if it's too predictable, if we know what's going to happen next, if we know what note is coming next, then it's boring. Then why should we listen? Um, so, so I think that is, you know, uh, if you've got a teenager and they're, and they're listening to noise, just remember that it's not noise to them. It's noise right. to you because your brittle brain just hasn't found a way to assimilate those musical patterns yet yeah and also there's probably higher novelty preference um during adolescence than Absolutely. later in life so you're gonna naturally have a number of different factors kind of coalescing your teen's gonna have really different taste in music than you and it's gonna sound uh pretty crazy yeah, but 100 yeah i'm i'm vaguely familiar with some sociology research that like people's music preferences right it's like they tend to stick with what they are when they're 18 or 20 or early 20 i mean something yep. depressingly young is when we basically <laughs> right yeah the acoustic brain turns off like nope nothing new yeah, i'm done it. i'm done with new stuff yeah totally. got it this is yeah right. <laughs> it's locked for the rest of my life now yeah I also found it really interesting. Um, you talk about lyrics and um, even lyricists like John Lennon and um, the the urge of the listeners to figure out what they're talking about. And um, 
sort of walking that line as an artist of creating uh, art that isn't so figureoutable. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, in particular, I mean, I, I kind of brought up the Beatles uh, and and have a, a short digression on the Beatles in terms of the Paul is dead conspiracy, um, which yeah. is something that's always fascinated me. I think we we often associate conspiracy theories with the 21st century, but they've been a part of human nature for as long as we've been around. Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know, the Paul is dead conspiracy was for about a year and a half, uh, there was a I mean, disturbingly widespread conspiracy that Paul McCartney had died. He'd been killed in a car crash and that a Paul McCartney double was pretending to be him in various Beatles pictures and albums. Um, of course, not true, but, you know, it was circulated. Some is that style and all these um, kind of clippings. People would share them in student newspapers. Uh, they made TV specials about it. It was the cover of Life magazine. Um Stuff like that, um, and 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 I highlighted it because people were in part driven to this conclusion that Paul McCartney was dead by these Beatles lyrics. Yeah. And I think behind that, if one takes a step back, it's it it really reveals the wrong attitude to bring to art, which is uh, the Beatles were writing ambiguous lyrics, deliberately ambiguous, deliberately mysterious, and people treated them like a code to be cracked. Um, yeah. The idea that, that there's only one answer, one right interpretation. And of course, that's the wrong way to treat complicated art. Um, what, what makes art last, whether it's Hamlet or Harry Potter or the Beatles, is that there are layers to it, that yeah. you don't read it once and figure it out. You oh, can read it a hundred times and come up with a hundred different answers. Exactly. Right. Um, that's what makes it, you know, rereadable and rich and rewarding. And I think ultimately conspiracy theories come from a mindset that the whole world is like those Beatles lyrics, right? That, that I, that I alone can connect the dots and solve it when the reality is reality is really complicated and pretty indecipherable. We're here today with Jonah Lehrer talking about the neuroscience of mystery and how we can utilize it in our families with our teenagers. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. I mean, I think awe is, is the ultimate emotion of mystery. So we experience awe when we are in the midst of a moment that we can't explain, can't fathom. Teenagers, they're very much, at least, and maybe I'm projecting from my own adolescence here, but they're very much in search of higher emotions. They're very much in search of big ideas. And, and maybe that's in part why they're interested in experimenting with drugs and, and, and feeling these feelings and, and stepping outside of kind of mundane life. Yeah. But awe is a chemical free way to get there you know, in the sense of you don't need to take a pill to get there. You can, you know, you can get that through a gorgeous piece of art that speaks to you or a gorgeous view of nature and so forth. In terms of the joy of the beginner's mind and the joy of mastery, mm. that the fun is always in the learning. The fun is always in the process of improvement, the act of education. Once you master something, it becomes boring. You yeah. take it for granted. It ceases to give you joy. We tend to assume personality is stable and constant, right? We love taking the Myers-Briggs and diagnosing ourselves. Ah, right. 
But when you when you look at personality in the real world, it's often very context dependent. So to take that summer camp research, a kid would never be aggressive with their peers, but but could get hostile with a camp counselor um, and vice versa. Um, someone may be very shy with adults, but be very extroverted with their friends. Um, they might be very shy in a situation in which they don't feel like they've mastered it, but put them on the soccer field and they're very confident and very talkative. Yeah. So the idea being that personality is inconstant, um, but but very situation dependent. And I think that's something I think about a lot as a parent of a preteen, especially um, just just how I see her when she's with me. And I tend to assume that's how she is always. Yeah, but right. Then you get glimpses of my child with her friends and she is obviously different to me. And that's OK. Yeah. That's that's not her being a teenager. That's her being a human being. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening.